0: Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have been worshiping as we sing, as we read the creed, as we read from God's word, as uh, we prayed. And we're going to continue that as we hear from God. We have the, the sermon and communion as the central part of our service because we desperately need to hear a word from God. If God doesn't speak, I don't have anything to say. So we're going to open up a Gospel of Matthew. We've been work, working our way uh, through this uh, Gospel near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I uh, have well, one more week uh, in uh, that here today. Uh, we're continuing where DJ left off uh, last week. Uh, as Jesus concludes this sermon, you know, he gives some stark warnings, to get our attention concerning the importance of his call to a greater righteousness, an inward righteousness that works its way out. So since we're continuing the thought from last week, uh, our verses we're going to focus on today, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Uh, Let's start with uh, verse uh, 15, though. is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Pray with me. Father God, we want to understand your word. Uh, Give us uh, hearts to hear from you, hear even the the tough words. Uh, Help us to hear not just information, but I pray that through our time in studying your word, that uh, we would experience a transformation. We would look more like you uh, through our time here today. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, don't worry, we got a couple more years left. So it makes it easy. You know, sometimes you, you go to uh, gatherings and stuff and you, you forget, like, what are we actually studying in uh, you know, we were in one book and we were in the other, and you forget, you've got to get an answer um, for the next couple of years. Like, mercy will probably be in first grade by the time we, or something like that, by the time uh, we, we get done with Matthew here. And we, we've seen that in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus isn't just chucking the Old Testament. He, he's actually fulfilling it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that uh, he is both properly in interpreting and all the Old Testament is pointing to Him and this uh, call to a uh, greater righteousness that we, we've seen here today. And, and last week we talked about uh, false teachers and the fact that we'll know them by their fruits. And by the way, if, if you'd like a listening guide, you can li- lift your hand up. I won't leave Alex back there for the entire sermon. We'll lift your hand up if you'd like a listening guide, there's a place to take notes. If you miss a point or two, you've got those on there too. But these uh, false teachers, uh, they don't just announce themselves as uh, false prophets. Instead, they, they speak good Christianese. They do all the seemingly right stuff. They're often very charismatic and just generally nice. But their fruits you know, reveal that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. That's why we need to beware, be vigilant of them. You know, today we're, we're going to continue on that a, a false prophet theme. Some have called this a false disciple, but really it's the same people, the same type of person that it's describing as last week. And we're going to learn that there's a lot at stake, as in heaven and hell. So, so while you're probably reading this passage, particularly verses 21 through 23, it's talking about, you know, judgment and judgment day and standing before Jesus. You probably can't help but uh, think of situations you can liken it to in your life because none of us have stood before Jesus on, on the last day in judgment. That That's a pretty foreign concept for us. We don't really have a lot to grasp onto and say, Oh, that, I know exactly what that's gonna gonna look like. You know, we haven't experienced the final day before the Judge of all. You know, we have information in Scripture about it, uh, plenty of it, but but we haven't seen it yet. It's still very conceptual. And, and to make it more concrete, we uh, attach situations we see in our lives of to liken it to. It, it's kind of like. Um, My my girls, we're going to Florida here in a couple weeks. Well, they've never been to Florida. They've never been to any beaches in Florida. But when I ask them what they think it's going to be like, they're likening it to, well, they've been to uh, Myrtle Beach. They've been to a beach uh, outside of Chicago last year. And they're using that experience to kind of project on, this is what I should expect. This is what... It, you know, probably will be like some similarities. Of course, you know, they'll get some things wrong. They're all about having the fruit Loops on the beach, which doesn't always go together. But um, you, so when you think about this passage, it, one uh, situation I was drawn to was like, is this like that situation? You remember about a year and a half ago uh, that uh, United... Passenger being uh, dragged off a plane. Remember that one where the you know the video went viral and there's these security officers uh, dragging the guy off the plane because you know there were more people that needed to get on the plane than uh, seats. And you know the obviously it was a PR nightmare uh, for them, and you know a lot of things involved in that but he thought he was going from O'Hare to Louisville that day in that plane and and he made it onto the plane but uh, to his surprise and horror uh, he was certainly not. Is that what this passage is like or or, you know I've been working a lot at the hotel and there are many reasons people may show up at the hotel but they might not be staying there you know they might have missed the 45 different signs and are actually have a reservation at a, another hotel. Yeah, you know, they um they could have booked the wrong date. And we' sold out. like you're not you could be staying somewhere I'm sure tonight but it it's not not going to be here. It you know, it could be our fault. It, not that it, this ever happens, but you know a toilet could have overflowed and went down to the first floor and uh and not make those rooms uh, sellable for the night. There, there's all kinds of reasons you know they uh, could think they're you know walk in that door and they are convinced that they're going to spend their night at the hotel, but for one reason or another, uh, they they are not. So so it's that as we work our way through our passage through the passage, think about it. Do these situations actually reflect what's what's going on here in the the text where? Um, They say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? But Jesus casts them out saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Obviously, much more is at stake. This is a much more important scale than where you're going to spend a night, what flight you're going to take. So let's work our way through the passage, starting with, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, Lord, here, that, that word could be used in this day and age as a uh, word of respect, kind of like sir. Uh, but here it seems to involve uh, at least a partial uh, acknowledgement of Jesus as master. Lord, king of one's life. It's, it's been used uh, once uh, in this gospel up to this point, but will be employed uh, five times as we, we get into the next chapter, chapter 8. At the very minimum, you know, those who uh, call Jesus Lord have significant engagement with him. And there, there seems to at least be a claim that he has some sort of authority over them. That, that's how Matthew uses it. In his gospel, it's often on the lips of Jesus' followers. You know, by using this word, you know, one is at least claiming to have some sort of relationship with, with Jesus. It, at least giving the appearance of professing some sort of allegiance to him. This is the right Christian jargon. It's meant to sound convincing. Similar words to what true followers of Jesus would use. And I'm not here to say it's wrong to call Jesus Lord. That has been the historic confession of the church all throughout the ages. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. We find here, though, it's just insufficient and not determinative of one's true relationship with him. And that says, enter the kingdom of heaven. Look how that is contingent on obeying the one, the Father, who is in heaven. This faith produces works. Uh, These works aren't all that flashy. It calls them uh, here, they are obedience to the Father. Uh, Plain and simple. Most aren't going to be impressed by this. More on that to come. But on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Let's take a step back here and not miss the assumption here. It's not stated. That's why it's so good. Who who is the judge? And that leads us to our, our first truth from this passage we cannot miss, that Jesus is the judge on the final day. You see how it's just assumed. He doesn't argue it. He, he doesn't uh, draw out a big, long argument for it. No, it's just assumed that Jesus is this judge on the final day. And, and Matthew, as we work our way through his gospel later on, he's going to unpack this in uh, far greater detail as we move to, uh, say, Matthew chapter 23. And, and we've uh, seen in the last couple weeks, Um, about us exercising judgment. You might remember a few weeks ago as uh, Todd preached about that famous passage, you know, judge not that you will not be judged. And do we need to be exercising judgment? Absolutely. Uh, DJ explained that very well last week. If they're they're calling Jesus Lord and doing uh, great Christian deeds, the assumption is here that the, the people who are doing this, that they're, at least a part of the church in some way related to the church. They uh, attend at the very minimum. And we need to be discerning and vigilant, understanding uh, that if a false teacher were in our congregation, would they probably be bringing the Book of Mormon to community group and pulling it out and like, hey, I had a word from Jesus this week. Let me read it to you. Probably not. Probably a far sneakier than that. The person would probably sound very Christian, very charismatic. You'd be drawn to them. If that was, person was going to encourage you to depart from the moral imperatives of Scripture, they probably wouldn't show up to church uh, here Sunday morning dressed like they just got off a shift at uh, P.T.'s downtown. It's, they're going to be a lot tougher to spot than that. And we know this was an issue in the early church. You know, think of stories like in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They looked really good. They were selling their property and giving the money to the church. I mean, that that doesn't sound like this is the bad apple, a false prophet, a a false follower of Jesus. Paul has to tell the believers in Galatia that even if an angel from heaven, okay, so that looks pretty good, and I bet you an angel from heaven sounds awfully convincing. Even if an angel from heaven, or if Paul himself switches his message and comes preaching a different gospel, what does Paul say about him? Let that person be accursed. We are called to be vigilant, but... The good news is, we, we know that Jesus is the judge on the final day. This, this is radical. Jews reserve the, the right, this right for, to God and God alone. And here, Jesus is saying that it's his prerogative. He doesn't argue it, he just assumes it. We see in, in verse 23, it's about who Jesus knows. And this is far from a question of his omniscience that the person just hasn't had an introduction to Jesus or something like that. All throughout scripture, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, this idea of knowing is far more than just head knowledge or reciting some facts. That It's about having an intimate relationship with closeness of relationship of God and his people and th- this type of relationship is of utmost importance if Jesus is the judge w- when all is said and done uh, to not be known by Jesus doesn't mean one just needs to to meet him need to you know introduce get to know know the person's name it means one doesn't have a relationship with him other than a relationship that will experience his wrath, as we see here. Uh, Think about this truth for a minute. We often uh, forget this in a world where uh, Jesus is minimized. People cuss in his name. It's hard to see people in our world even under all that much uh, authority to anyone. But but just wait. On On the final day, The person on the throne with all the authority is Jesus. Are you awed by him today? Does that make you want to worship him more passionately? It should. Am I longing for the day when Jesus will make everything right? We, We recognize in our world signs of brokenness all around us. And this is not the way. God designed it to be. We, we, see, we see good things that God is working, but we, we see how sin ha- has messed up the, this world. And we should long for the day when Jesus will settle all wrongs, make everything right. That, that's very encouraging news on days when everything uh, seems to, to go wrong. If you're not a Christian here today, the idea that Jesus will be judge and is the judge on the final day is not a comforting thought. It wasn't designed to be. It should freak you out. Jesus isn't fooled by good talk. He isn't going to just let every, everything go. Everyone do what they want to do. Understand that, that he is the judge, so, so don't be deceived that you can't, thinking you can make your own rules and follow what pleases you the most. Everyone will stand before Jesus in the end. Consider that. And these people are coming to Jesus, proclaiming that they prophesied, cast out demons, uh, did mighty works in his name. Uh, Are these bad things? No, Jesus did all of them. We've uh, seen a little bit uh, already in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to see even more so as we, work our way through the next uh, few uh, chapters here. Did, did his followers do these things? Absolutely. So, so what's the issue? What's the, the beef here? It, again, these works are not determinative of true faith. We're not against any of this, but we understand that the devil is a very good copycat. You know, how could people do these things? Well, will they could be done out of faith, and trust in Jesus, but they also could be done in one's own strength and reliance on the work of the evil one. And, and that leads us to another truth, that external righteousness will not secure justification. To, to prophesy in Jesus' name, you know, speaking in Jesus' name, often uh, Old Testament prophets, if, as you might remember, a lot of their work was in uh, pointing back to God's law and saying, here's what God said. Here's what you're doing. So why aren't you doing what God said? But they would also uh, foretell uh, the future. And and that foretelling the future seems to be what the focus is on here, given this uh, context and this perceived evidence of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That there seems to be some sort of foretelling the future. And the argument here from the, the false prophets is that, you know, how would Jesus have let them speak these prophecies in his name? How would he let that happen if they're not on his team? Jesus prophesied quite often all throughout His gosp- uh, this gospel. So it's... Being like him, isn't it? And this protest by the false prophets is meant to be so shocking that the person wants Jesus to say, "Oh, never mind, I, I, I didn't know that. I forgot about that, but as we all know, that's certainly not how it goes down. that then to cast out demons, you know, demons were linked with Satan and his minions uh, people in Jesus' first century audience understood that demon possession and control of a person was a very real thing. We see numerous times uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus healed people stricken with demon possession. Even in the next chapter here in Matthew, we'll see Jesus heal two men possessed by demons and he he casts these demons, you might remember, into a herd of pigs. And what what happens is this herd of pigs runs off the cliff the argument here is, you know, how could these demons come out in Jesus' name if the prophets weren't even on Jesus' team, if they were on the opposite team? You know, why would they be trying to cast out demons that are on their team? If these prophets were truly on Satan's team, why would they be fighting against Satan. And then in mighty works. This is often used to describe Jesus' miracles. Again, you know, how could people like this not enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, that's the question that all these objections are trying to prompt. And we're back again to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Religious and looks very good on the outside, but look at the final destination and Jesus' words concerning them. Verse 23. And then I then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is is this just hyperbole that Jesus calls these uh, religious guys who are casting out demons, prophesying in Jesus' name? doing miraculous works that he calls them workers of lawlessness? Is this just kind of like our political climate where everything devolves to name-calling? No. So if we believe that Jesus is right in his identification of these religious people, some of the most religious people you would have known of the day, everyone looked up to them. He, He calls them Workers of lawlessness. How how can this be the case? You know, they're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're doing all these good things. They sound like the farthest things from workers of lawlessness. But Jesus classifies their external righteousness, this external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, as lawlessness because it in no way pleases the ruler, the, the king, the lawgiver. The Lord over all. It is an affront to Jesus and his authority to think that one, by just checking a few boxes, putting on a show, could please God. That They are working for their own glory, not the glory of the one enthroned over all. It is done to subvert him, not serve him. They want to use God and use God's kingdom not serve him and work for his kingdom. And Jesus isn't uh, putting up with that. Allison correctly asserts, the spectacular and showy things that cannot but promote vanity and satisfaction in this world are far from being unambiguous boons. In no way can they be held up as testimony to faith. They do not make Possible entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Judgment is not rendered according to spectacular manifestations, but according to the demands of righteousness and love and the secret matters of the heart. And there's one more thing we can't um, uh, miss here is that uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 6, verse 8, in his words of utter rejection. Turn with me back to uh, Psalm six. Psalm six. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. "...nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise?" I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And watch this Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord ex- accepts my prayer. All my enemies will, shall be ashamed. And greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So, Psalm 6 8 here is spoken to those who who would like to try to take advantage of David's distress. But if, if God has heard David's plea for help, and he has, all their plans, schemes, slandering, of David will be of no avail. And, and here Jesus quotes this psalm, not in relation. You, you'd think who who would Jesus liken these Old Testament foes of God? Who would he liken them to? Would he liken them to the, the Romans? And maybe the cult worshipers of his day, but who does he liken them to? He likens them to the religious leaders who are prophesying in Jesus' name, casting out demons, doing miracles. That's who he likens them to. You say, that, that's awfully harsh. The Old Testament enemies of God, that that's them? Yeah. Jesus is right on the money, calling Jesus Lord and doing great spiritual things in his name but done for one's own glory without a relationship with him does not make one a good person. Doesn't make one a person who just needs a you know, slight correction, you know, get you, you're just a veering off the road. No, it makes one an enemy of Jesus. And by the way, we've already learned that Jesus is the one sitting on the throne on the final day. So it's inconceivable that such a one will not experience his wrath. And that leads to to one more truth we cannot miss in this passage. Obedience to Jesus's call to greater righteousness evidences transformation. So, So calling Jesus by the appropriate title, doing all these powerful, showy things in his name, they don't qualify as evidence to entrance into the kingdom. But what does? Look back at verse 21 here will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, doing the will of the Father. I love what Dietrich says about this passage. Verses 21 to 23 are a dreadful warning. The most orthodox avowals of faith have no value in the eyes of God if they are not translated into concrete obedience to his will. One may, with his lips, loudly profess his faith in God and even invoke Jesus as Lord, yet deny him by thoughts, words, and acts. This is a faith that translates into obedience to the will of the Father. So, so what is the will of the Father, according to? To the Gospel of Matthew? It's what Jesus just told us about in this sermon that, we, that we've been studying for the last couple months. It's this call to a greater righteousness. A call to his followers. L- interesting thing, Luke uh, makes this clear by writing instead. He writes, instead of um, the will of the Father, obedience to the will of the Father, he writes, what I, Jesus, Tell you, so, so why does Matthew highlight doing the will of the Father? Well, what we see here is the unity of the Godhead. Doing the will of the Father is obedience to Jesus. Is doing what he, Jesus just told us to do. Jesus appears as judge, as a representative of the Father. They are in complete unity. And what Jesus is calling his followers to always has been, always is the will of God. This is not something different from the will of, the, of God in the Old Testament. And, and many people in our theological camp would be more comfortable if Jesus had said, you can't do anything. You, you just need to have faith. But he doesn't say that. He goes after actions that evidence true faith. Doing the will of the Father. That's a whole lot less flashy than what the false prophets were doing. It's not just an event thing, putting on a show. It's a lifestyle. It's evidence of true faith. Because we on our own don't seek God. We aren't the ones running after God. It's evidence of transformation. And, and it's good news for the average Christian here. Have you ever talked to professing believers who have ridiculously crazy, very good things happening? They've, they've personally experienced uh, miraculous he- healing. Maybe, maybe their, their church is booming with growth. They're super excited about plans of flying over across the world uh, to engage in mission work. They're being blessed uh, financially and personally by God. And, and I'm not here to, to criticize any of that. That can all be good. It just depends on whether it's flowing from God and a heart that treasures him above all else. But let me say far more often, doing the will of the Father, involves a lot of mundane things. And in the case of Jesus and us, it involves death. If not physical death, uh, certainly death to self and to the world. It looks a lot more like you fighting to read God's word even when you're exhausted. It looks a lot more like uh, setting up for services week in and week out. It, it looks a lot more like trying again and again to engage that neighbor in gospel conversation, even when he or she just doesn't seem to get it. That's doing the will of the Father. So, so that brings us to the question of whether this passage prescribes morbid introspection, always asking, could I be the the one saying, Lord, Lord, on the final day and be rejected. And and, and though I applaud such an attitude and sensitivity, because it's better than just saying, uh, you know, if Jesus is judged on the final day, you know, screw it, I'm doing what I want to do. But but that, that's not the design of this passage, morbid introspection. It's not about, you know, checking your hotel confirmation email 20 times, calling the hotel. Uh, No, this person who is rejected on the final day knows it. Yes, he or she can be self-deceived, and certainly that can go on. But, but there's no true and abiding love for Jesus. There's no desire for Jesus' righteousness beyond the appearance to others. And, and see how this person reacts to the news. It, it's not surprise here. The reaction is self-justification. How does the person react? He or she is touting works, prophecy, casting out demons, other impressive, miraculous things and that's not going to work before jesus it's not going to work now it's not going to work on the last day and that's exactly it the person's heart was revealed what he or she was trusting in was displayed for all to see the person was trusting in a bunch of oppressive things that honestly could have fooled us but it doesn't fool jesus Uh, Others, uh, you know, may be awestruck, having seen the outward appearance of Christianity in that person, but but unaware of the person's true spiritual condition. The the good news in determining whether you are this person or not is not that you have to do a morbid introspection, you know, wondering if you forgot to cross a T, check a box or something like that, and we'll be rejected on the last day. No, you look at your relationship with Jesus now. Do you love him, treasure him above all else? Are, are, are you doing the things he calls you to do? Why, why are you doing those things? Are you doing them to put a, a show on for others? Are, are you doing them to look Christian before others? Or are you doing them out of love for Jesus? If if you are doing them out of love for him, him, understand understand that false teaching, false teachers, work the way we we've seen in this passage. You know, don't be enamored by flashy works. You be careful to follow someone, assuming that. Their flashy works prove their legitimacy. This shouldn't make us overly skeptical, denying every miracle. We, we believe God is a miracle-working God, but we shouldn't be blinded uh, just to believe every, everything someone says just because they've had a great experience. They've shown us some awesome uh, things. If if that is not you, may, maybe you're hearing Going, coming to church is just kind of the Christian thing you, you like to do. This is a call to repent, to stop putting on a show and, and to know that uh, Jesus is the final judge and he's not going to be a fooled. To come to him in faith and repentance. For those of us who are Christians, this should not lead to undue Doubt but faith in Jesus. I know that if I am trusting in my own works, things are not going to go well for me on the last day. But if I am trusting in the work of Jesus on my behalf, my destiny is secure. I have not perfectly obeyed the Father, but the good news is Jesus did. I am trusting in Jesus and his perfect obedience uh, on my behalf. It doesn't mean that works don't matter. That my works don't matter. That they do. I, I'm trusting in Jesus' work. And it produces faith in me that does work. This, these works are evidence of salvation. But they're, they're not the grounds of it. I am resting and trusting in Jesus. And that I'll be declared justified by him on the final day. We're not against prophecy. We're not against casting out demons, other miraculous works, and they uh, can be done by those who are transformed, but they make very sucky grounds for salvation. We are trusting in Jesus. We are saved on the basis of his grace alone and united through him, with him through faith. Uh, Pray with me.